and I was on the edge of my seat because, um, I mean, to, to me, it's super bad that, yeah. that the planet's getting irreversibly hotter. And again, like to go back to people's brains, I don't understand how anyone cannot be freaked out by that. Yeah. That is climate scientist Peter Kilmers, who is with NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, where he was speaking on the podcast entitled The Green New Deal. On his website, Kilmers says, Global warming is happening with a rapidity that leaves me speechless. Welcome to this latest episode of Climate Conversations. I am your host, Robert McLean. This podcast is assembled here in Shepparton, in northern Victoria, Australia, on the lands of the Yorta Yorta people. Yes, the stolen lands of the Yorta Yorta people, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Let's hear a little more from Peter Kelmus, and you'll find a link for that podcast in the show notes. Welcome everyone to the Green New Deal podcast, part of your favourite environmental platform, GND Media. I'm Adam Williams, and today I'm joined by producer Andrew Glassford. Andrew, how are you, mate? Very well, lads. Very well, Earl. Uh, Happy New Year. It's uh, all kicking off as we head towards oblivion. oblivion. That's not how I want to start this year. <laughs> I don't want to start like that. I'm doing great, lads. I'm doing great. Let's start with a chipper uh, perspective this year. Yeah, well, let's do it. Let's do it. And today, mate, we're joined by NASA climate scientist Peter Kalmus. Peter, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. And I should say I'm speaking on my own behalf. I always uh, have to add okay. that. <laughs> Unfortunately, I wish I could speak on behalf of more people, but <laughs> yeah, awesome. Yeah, disclaimers everywhere. <laughs> yeah, no problem at all. So, Peter, if you were to do a poll of a thousand people and ask them what NASA does, I reckon 999 percent of it, or 999 people, would probably most say that flying rockets is what NASA does. But you're a NASA climate scientist. So tell us a little bit more about yourself for those in the audience that don't know who you are, but also some of the things about NASA that potentially don't know that NASA does. Yeah, so so I work at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, um, and they're probably most famous for uh, putting rovers on Mars, uh, which is super amazing, and it's a really fun place to work. They also have missions going to you know, uh, outer planets. Um, they they were responsible in part for sending the Voyager satellites, which travel outside of our solar system. So all kinds of cool, amazing stuff. Um, definitely my favorite NASA center. Uh, sorry, other NASA centers. They're, they're all amazing, but I really like JPL. But one thing that I think most people don't really realize is that uh, NASA is also the premier place institution on our entire planet in terms of um, putting up satellites that monitor the Earth itself. Um, and that's yeah. incredibly important in an epoch of accelerating climate change. Um, so we have satellites, for example, that can that can measure uh, the, the loss of ice in the two main ice sheets on our planet, uh, Greenland yeah. and Antarctica. And it's amazing how they do that. It's a pair of satellites that's orbiting uh, around the planet. And when in low orbit, and when what the the lead satellite gets close to uh, like a mountain range or a giant ice sheet, it'll it'll accelerate a little bit because of the gravitational tug, and the distance between them will um, increase a little bit. But then, like a slinky, the back one will catch up, and by those tiny, tiny like you know fraction of a human hair differences uh, yeah. in the in the distance between the 
two satellites, you can infer uh, you know, gravitational anomalies on the Earth's surface, including things like disappearing aquifers, but then also like this record of the ice sheet loss. And there's, we also have a, a satellite that I've worked with a lot, has an instrument that has a record going back over 20 years uh, for temperature and moisture profiles in that atmosphere. And so that's an incredibly important record too. Yeah. You can even infer surface temperatures from that. We've got satellites that can uh, look at uh, the temperature of the ocean, the the height of the ocean. We've got temperatures uh, satellites that can look at forest loss and forest fragmentation, um, biodiversity, uh, land cover, um, just you know cloud cover. There's yeah. and that's that's just barely scratching the surface. So combined with the in situ data, which is very sparse, um, but you know like highly accurate point measurements. Then you have this like like picture of the entire Earth uh, that you can use to augment, and both are important for understanding how our planet's changing right now. Yeah, that's absolutely incredible. I didn't know that about all those satellites, yeah. uh, but some of the audience may not have done so. Thank you for that. Well, just going back to about you as a person as well, Peter, um, you know, how did you get into these sorts of areas? And also as well, what I always like to ask new guests is, was there a moment or was it a series of events that made you realize that the climate crisis was so big and all-encompassing that you felt that you had to dedicate, at, at the very least, your professional, if not your whole life to, to it? Yeah, it's a really great question. So um, it took me a while to, I think I'm constantly reassessing what I need to do in response to this knowledge. And yeah. um, I'm also just like constantly wondering what's going on inside other people's brains. So I think I think I definitely want to talk with uh, the three of you or the, the two. I think the three of us should talk <laughs> about like what's going on inside our own brains and like kind of how we can infer what's going on in yeah. other people's brains. Because it's, it's just endlessly strange to me that people just can like most people can go about their days so well when you know when when my brain's yes. like basically constantly freaking out and saying like we've got this information that we're in deep 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 trouble and yet like the majority of humanity and especially the humans with with all the power are taking us further and further into that deep serious uh, deadly trouble that we're in right now um which all could have been avoided if you know 20 or 30 years ago we'd actually taken it seriously so mm -hmm. so yeah like 20 years ago was when uh, roughly 2006 was when I really started to realize we were in a serious emergency. And um, back then in that year, there were, there were three really powerful things that uh, kind of pushed me into that knowledge. Um, you know, before that, I was, yeah, I'm a little ashamed to say that before 2006, I was kind of blissfully ignorant, just like uh, going about my life, maybe how the same way a lot of people today are still doing it. Although yeah. in 2006, you know, there we we didn't really have serious uh, uh, global heating impacts and uh, heating disasters, the floods and the fires, uh, the the rain, you know, the rainstorms, the droughts, the heat waves that we do now. So I think now it's like super obvious and super unavoidable what's happening. You have all these news stories. Back in 2006, there was still some question about whether the signals were all detectable or not. And, um, you know, the media kept saying, I remember back then pretty distinctly, it was always like, we better, the framing was, we better start doing something about this, you know, five years from now. It was never, there was no sense of urgency back then. Yeah. But anyway, uh, 
the three things that really kind of grabbed me by the collar and shook me and got me to understand what was happening. Uh, one was Al Gore's movie, Inconvenient Truth, mm-hmm. um, you know, which, which kind of scared the bejesus out of me and then said like, what could I do? Like at that, it was like, what can you guys do about this? Change your light bulbs. And I was just like, that's, <laughs> that's not, I mean, I guess that was nominally better than yeah. recycling. I think there's a lot of people out there right now who think they have to recycle harder and that's, what's going to solve all of these, you know, environmental problems. And they don't totally, people don't totally distinguish between different kinds of environmental problems, like the plastic crisis versus yeah. global heating, yeah. which are quite distinct things. Um, but you still change your light bulbs. Even in 2006, I was, I could tell the first, you know, however many minutes of the movie, um, were dire and super serious and, and quite bang on the money. And then, you know, poor Al Gore, I think just didn't have a sense of how to come out of it, how to solve it. So he was like, change your light bulbs. And it was like that whole individual action thing, right. Mm -hmm. Which we get into and talk about a little bit. So that, that was the first thing. The second thing was uh, Jim Hansen, uh, the NASA scientist. At the time, he I think he was still the director of the Goddard Institute of Space Studies. I was in New York City uh, halfway through my uh, physics PhD at the time. I was studying astrophysics, um, gravitational waves specifically. And so every week at, at the Columbia Physics Department, we had somebody come in and give a talk, you know, people that were successful in their fields and condensed matter in uh, astronomy, you know, in, in, um, astro and, you know, whatever kind of physics they'd come in and, and, and give a talk. And it wasn't very common to have a a colloquium talk from an earth scientist. Uh, but Jim Hansen came in and he, um, he talked about, uh, the, energy imbalance on planet earth, um, and how big it was and, um, what kind of what that, what the implications of that were. Um, so that's the, the fact that there's more energy coming into planet earth right now than going out of planet earth mm-hmm. into space. And, um, you know, there's this thing in physics called conservation of energy, uh, which means like Basically, obviously, if you've got more energy coming in than going out, the planet has no choice but to get hotter, which is yeah. exactly what's happening, right? So, so essentially, sunlight uh, has stayed the same, um, pretty constant, maybe even slightly dimmer over the last few decades, um, very slightly. Like I, I don't know what the per- like kind of the percent level is. What's in my I've, brain? I've not personally noticed, so I think it's probably quite slight. Yeah, it's quite slight. And then uh, you have all these greenhouse gases, these these molecules that interact with uh, the outgoing black body radiation from planet Earth. So planet the planet's surface and its atmosphere are, you know, at a particular temperature. So they quantum mechanically emit infrared radiation because that's the temperature range that they're in. Something hotter can emit visible light in black body, like, you know, like a like a red hot, you know, uh, molten iron or something, yeah, right? So yeah. That's hotter than the Earth's surface or the atmosphere. You <laughs> have this infrared radiation, and it's interacting quantum mechanically with the carbon dioxide molecules and the methane, the carbon dioxide from, from burning fossil fuels, the methane from extracting the fossil fuels, uh, the nitrous oxide from agriculture, uh, water molecules too. Although water molecules are that's just part of the Earth system, so um, there's you know it's not they're not long lived, and they they kind of help keep our planet at a habitable temperature because without any greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, it would be a frozen 
ball of ice. But anyway, now we have the opposite problem, which is though that outgoing radiation can't escape as easily, some of it gets re-radiated back down to the earth. So the earth is heating up. Anyway, there's aerosols, which complicate the situation, et cetera. So he came and talked about all of that. And I was on the edge of my seat because, um, I mean, to, to me, it's super bad that, yeah. that the planet's getting irreversibly hotter. And again, like to go back to people's brains, I don't understand how anyone cannot be freaked out by that. Yeah. It's like yeah, yeah, yeah. this, this four and a half billion year old planet with all of this life on it, which is like, so kind of delicately attuned to uh, sort of like the near past climate conditions. I mean, and we've had five mass extinctions, which have, uh, you know, most of them have been driven by changes in the climate, climate right? Yeah. So we know that when you have a great big, like quasi irreversible change in climate, you have a huge dip in biodiversity or a mass extinction. So it's catastrophic to life on earth. And here we are causing one. <laughs> and anyway, so that was the second thing. And then the third thing was I had my first kid um, in 2006 and that kind of changed my perspective uh, shifted me from, you know, just being so, sort of like a selfish 20 something kind of trying to have fun and, uh, you know, trying to, uh, move up in my career, um, trying to, uh, impress ladies and stuff like that. Right. <laughs> uh, and then, uh, suddenly I had this little kid and, um, it kind of kicked me out of that sort of like, like, Wow, what a coup for the podcast, The Green New Deal. Peter Kelmus talking about the climate crisis and explaining why it happens and how he feels about it. Kelmus, along with many other climate scientists, is one of my heroes. I urge you to go to the podcast, and the link will be in the show notes, and listen to everything Kelmus has to say. And now we have 90 seconds from Yale Climate Connections. I'm Dr. Anthony Lizowitz, and this is Climate Connections. Scuba divers experience the beauty of tropical fish, corals, and other sea life firsthand. But they also see the effects of climate change, from shrinking seagrass beds to coral reefs in distress. It creates an imprint on your mind that's difficult to forget. Neil Vanikirk is a former dive instructor and executive director of Two Degrees C. The organization wants to give divers who are concerned about global warming the tools to contribute to climate science. Two Degrees C has created what it calls the Wavelet, a low-cost wearable sensor that measures water temperatures, saltiness, and other data. And then built into the system is also a GPS, so we know where in the world that observation was taken. The sensor is attached to a scuba diver's regulator. They just float passively behind the diver's head. The company is testing the technology with about 20 divers. But Vanikirk says there are millions of divers around the world, so he hopes the effort will scale quickly and provide scientists with more insight into how global warming affects the ocean. If there's one thing that we can leave for the future, it's information for this location and this time. And this is the only opportunity to make the observation. So if we miss it, it's gone forever. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. To learn more about climate change, visit climateconnections.org. Let's move now to a piece from the Washington Post. It's by Evan Helper and Laura Reilly. The headline of the story is, How Meat and Milk Companies Are Racing to Ease Your Climate Guilt. The story begins. 
at Hopte de Bergaba near the University of Florida campus in Gainesville recently, Van Morrison crooned Na Na Natalia and the sauce bar was fully stocked. The menu advertised the usual gluten-free and vegan options as well as something more unusual. Beef purporting to save the planet, one bite at a time. The Austin-based chain buys the meat from ranchers who use eco-friendly agricultural techniques. The burgers, about $4 more expensive than the traditional ones, are designed to appeal to a fast-growing, desirable demographic of climate-conscious omnivores. But the extent to which such premium-priced beef patties are helping cool the earth is hotly disputed. We want to change the narrative that eating meat is bad for the planet, or that eating plant-based is better, said Chad Edwards, the on-duty manager, explaining the company's just-eat-a-hop-duddy-burger solution to climate change. The stakes, or perhaps stakes, S-T-A-K-S, of this effort to rewrite the science-backed narrative that cows are a climate menace are bigger than this 46-chain restaurant. The company is at the vanguard of a contentious push by meat and dairy industries to try and rebrand as climate solutions. The companies claim they can neutralise the climate impact of cows by changing their diets, overhauling how their manure is handled and transitioning farming and grazing practices that equip soil to capture carbon. And now we have a story from a conversation by Jonathan Knott, who is a professor of physical geography from James Cook University. The headline for his story is, As another cyclone heads for Queensland, we must be ready for the new threat, torrential rain and floods. The story begins. We've long known cyclones as heat engines, fueled by hot water, They also pump heat from the hot tropics into cooler areas, but they're starting to behave differently. As the world heats up, the atmosphere can hold more moisture. When cyclones form, they can transfer significantly more water from oceans to land. We saw this in December. Most of the damage done by Cyclone Jasper when it hit far north Queensland wasn't from intense winds. It was from the Category 2 storm stalled over Cape York, dumping huge amounts of rain over two metres in some areas and triggering devastating floods. It's likely to happen again this week as a slow-moving tropical low heads for northern Queensland, carrying huge amounts of water and threatening new floods. Authorities are warning people to prepare, not just on the coast, but well inland. The storm, likely to be named Cyclone Kiralee, will be the second to make landfall this season. Yes, we've reached the end of this episode of Climate Conversations. Thanks so much for your company. It's been great to have you along. And as you can probably hear from my croaky voice, it's early morning, but I'm going to have to go because I've got a lot to get through today. And yes, my screen is still alive with stories from the climate crisis, and while I can't get to them all, I'll put links to all of them, or most of them, in the show notes. So please go there, check them out, have a read, think about it, make some decisions about what you're going to do to counter the climate crisis. Now, I'd love to hear from you. I want to know what you think about this podcast. And two people just recently have contacted me and complimented me on the work. And one of them, Jonathan, made me aware of the interview with Peter Kalmus on the podcast, Green New Deal. Thank you, Jonathan. That was great. And it's much appreciated. So please let me know, good or bad, 
Don't hold back. And you can contact me at number 7 at iCloud.com. Now, please contact me. Also, I'd love you to share this with your friends because we need as many people as we know to come on board, help with countering the climate crisis, do what they can from where they are. Maybe we can't do much, but as long as we make our voices heard by somebody somewhere, maybe something will happen. And so maybe you'd like to be a guest on this podcast. If that's so, you can contact me via email at the address I mentioned earlier. So please think about that. So until we talk again, please take care, stay safe, and please be kind. For everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. Now take care and stay safe.